today and draw from that clip of that movie, draw a, a pretty significant but probably well-known to you verse to our thoughts. I'm speaking to you this morning on when the foundations are destroyed. The point of that, the point of that whole movie was the grave danger of small cracks in the foundation of that dam. That explosive expert, he just said this. He said, patience, you just have to wait. And they waited, and they didn't have to wait very long because the foundation of the dam was weakened, and just small cracks appeared. But before too long, those small cracks had opened up the entire wall of that dam, and everything in front of that water was destroyed. Well, the cultural and legislative dynamite that has been placed at the, at, the, at the base of society's dam for decades has been slowly but surely destroying the foundation of America. It's exactly the same, it's exactly the same principle. Let me just give you one clear, one clear example. There are several we could talk about today, but one clear example has to do with the state of marriage in our country. It doesn't matter if a person is saved or not, they can be married. So this doesn't apply just to Christians, it, it applies to all of culture. Divorce used to be, and some of you remember this, many of you don't because for a long time it's not been this way, but divorce used to be rare and it used to be hard to get. You remember those days. You didn't hardly know anyone who was divorced and if someone did get a divorce, the hoops they had to go through to get it were astronomical compared to what they are today. But the explosives were put in the right place when it came to the laws of our land. And cracks in the sacredness of the marriage vow began to appear and eventually those cracks widened so much that not only is divorce more common and far more easily obtained today, but we have been so emboldened as to rewrite the very definition of what it means to be married, as if it was our idea. That's just one example of the foundation being destroyed and everything com coming uh, down with it. I'll give you another example. Living together before marriage. We've dressed it up today. We call it premarital cohabitation. When I was a kid, if, if a preacher used the term living in sin, we knew exactly what that meant. We knew exactly what it meant. It meant a man and a woman were living in a house having sex and they never got married to get there. That's what it meant. That has become so common today. And what's amazing is the number of, of even professing Christian parents who are suggesting to their kids to live together before they get married just in case things don't work out. The foundations of the society are being attacked. Dynamite is being placed. Eventually, the moral dam is going to completely collapse, and God's plan for marriage is going to be washed away altogether. I don't know if it's happened yet, but I wouldn't be surprised. I will, but I will make this prediction. I won't say prophecy because I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet. But I'll say this. If it's not already legal it will become legal to marry your pet one day. Guaranteed it will. You say, 
You say, well, that sounds absurd. So does a man becoming a woman and having a relationship with a man. That sounds absurd as well. The foundations are being destroyed. When a nation repeatedly and brazenly celebrates what God condemns, divine judgment cannot be far behind. We don't know when that judgment will come. We don't know where that judgment will come. But as certainly as rebellious nations and empires in the past have suffered God's judgment, this society will as well. It's inescapable. God will judge sin. I'm not sure when David wrote this psalm, but the title of it says, To the Chief Musician, A Psalm of David. Maybe it was when Saul was chasing him around the wilderness. I I don't know when it was written. We really don't have a lot of, of hints. But what is evident is that when he wrote this, enemies seem to have been closing in on him. And he writes a short but very powerful psalm. And I know and you know verse 3 is the most common verse in this, in this chapter. And the question, here it is. The question is proposed. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Preachers, and I've heard them, perhaps you have. I have heard preachers use this text to say that when the foundations are destroyed, it's hopeless at that point. There's nothing we can do. That's the questions that ask, but you have to ask yourself this. Is that true? Are we hopeless when the foundations are destroyed? Because if you will, if you'll resist the temptation to pick out that verse all by itself, and you'll look at what David says all the way through from verses 1 down to verse number 7, you'll see that, that hopelessness is far from the message of Psalm 11. God does not leave us hopeless. When the found, this, is a, this is not meant to propose to you that it's all over. There's nothing else that can be done. When the foundations are destroyed, what can we do? It's not meant to cause you and I to throw up our hands. It's meant to turn our, our attention somewhere else besides the destruction of a society. When the foundations are destroyed, there are several things that we can do. But above all else... You and I need a fresh view of God when the foundations are destroyed. In a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a series that that causes us to take a look at the character and the nature of our God. In fact, I've entitled the series that we're going to go into in a couple of weeks, Behold Our God. What you and I need in 2024, in the years that remain, or even the months or weeks before Jesus Christ's return, what you and I need is a fresh view of God in a sinned, in a sin-darkened culture so that we don't throw up our hands and say, well, there's really not a whole lot we can do. We're just going to have to sit back and wait for Jesus to come. That's not it at all. There are things we can do, and I'd like to begin by suggesting we get a fresh view of God. I do believe the foundations of not just the American society, but I I think the foundation of the world society are being destroyed. We preach against the, the transgender movement, the homosexual movement, the abortive rights, and all of these things in our country as if the rest of the world doesn't deal with this. I'll tell you, we're 10 or, we're 10 or 12 years behind the cultural, uh, the cultural drift from Europe. Europe has laughed at us when we were proposing and, and arguing about the gay marriage that the Supreme Court passed. Europe was already laughing at us because they already had that. It's not just the American culture that is collapsing. It is mankind that is further and further running away from God. It's global. So what do we do as believers? I'd like to consider two things today from 
Psalm chapter 11, but let's not just pick out verse number three and make it say what we want it to say. Let's read all seven of these verses and see where David puts our attention. Verse number one, Psalm chapter 11. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's the question. Notice David's immediate reply. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and in horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Does David sound like he's hopeless in that song? Not to me it doesn't. It sounds like he's reminding us that the Lord, in verse 4, is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. That's not hopeless. I'd like to look at this morning this, this, this topic of when the foundations are destroyed and encourage you to do two things. Let's ask God to bless our time in his word and then we'll get right on those. Father, thank you for David and thank you for his faithfulness to you. Thank you for the questions that he asked and the answers that your spirit led him to write down so that we can look and see what we ought to do as foundation after foundation in homes and in governments, in societies and in cultures are collapsing. Lord, what are we to do? The righteous who've been made that way by Jesus, what are we to do in these days? Help us to know and then help us to do it. Lord, we are, we are light in this dark world. And so help us to let our light so shine before men that they can see our good works, but glorify our Father that's in heaven. Please bless your word to our hearts today. Encourage us with it. Lord, if, if anyone could be encouraged and hopeful in this world, it ought to be those that know you as Savior. So help us to, to demonstrate that before people desperately needing to know Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Two things. We're going to take the first three verses this morning and look at, first of all, a commitment to be made. A commitment to be made. Their second point will be verses 4 through 7. We'll get there in just a moment. But let's start off with this commitment to be made. You have in these first three verses David describing his predicament. And the men who are around him, they're not, they're not exaggerating. Uh, they they counsel him because he asked. He said, how are you guys telling me to flee as a bird to the mountain?" Why are you saying that? And, and they're saying because the enemy's bending his bow against you. He's sharpening his spear. He's coming after you, David. So we know he's in some type of predicament. But David, in response to their, what they're saying is, David, you need to get out of Dodge. You just need to get out of here. If this was written during the time of David's flight from Saul, what they are suggesting to him is that he get out of the nation leave the nation, not just out of Jerusalem. They're suggesting to him perhaps to go to Egypt. That seems to be where God's people would flee all the time, doesn't it? Old Testament or New Testament. Abraham, things got a little sticky. He went to Egypt. Joseph in the New Testament, God says, get down to Egypt. Well, here, his men are telling him to get out, probably encouraging him to leave not just the city of Jerusalem, but to leave the nation. 
So he's in this predicament, but David's response is, is wonderful. And it's, it's a good example for you and I. The first thing David responds in verse number one, he says, we will not flee. We will not flee. Now let me pause here and say this. It's not wrong to flee persecution. It's not wrong to flee persecution. Jesus himself in Matthew 10 verse 23 told his disciples this. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. So it's, never, it's not always wrong to flee. But David says here, we're not going to do that. We will not flee. God's people are not required to prove their faith by staying in one place if they could save their lives by fleeing. There are times when God encourages people to flee. Do you remember at the end of time, uh, at the end of time, God's people are going, the, the Jews are going to be fleeing to the mountains. So it's not always prohibited. But as with chapter 11 here, there are times when you and I are called to stand. Take a stand. And, and let whatever comes, come, but stand for what is absolutely right and biblical. David's friends and his counselors here tell him to flee the country. He says, no, we're going to trust in the Lord. We will not flee. You and I ought to have that same attitude in the deepening moral crisis that we see in our country today. I'm preaching this at the beginning of the year because we're coming into a presidential election year. And if I can be honest with you, just speaking... Uh, Speaking to my church family, it always, it always concerns me when we come into a politically charged election cycle because brothers and sisters in Christ tend to forget that they are brothers and sisters in Christ and their hope is not in Washington. I'm hoping here at the beginning of this year, before we get to November, I'm hoping to remind you what we ought to be about. And what we ought to be about is what does Scripture say? The, the moral crisis in our country and in our world is deepening. We ought not to run from that. We ought not to run for it when the election cycle comes around. Stand for what is right. The, we see some things going on in our world today. I got into a good discussion with my oldest daughter over uh, Thanksgiving. I think it was Thanksgiving here a while back. Over transgenderism and some of the ramifications that that's going to bring into the local church. There are some issues that are going to come into a local church with, with transgenderism because what do you do with a guy who transitions to being a female, gets saved, gets right with God, and he comes back, and he comes back to being a man? How is the church going to receive him? There, there, are some, there are some deep things that are the result of what's going on. The homosexual agenda that seems to be growing stronger, hostility toward Christianity, lawsuits against those standing for what is right, careers that are hindered because of anti-Christian hatred. Today, if you speak out publicly on some kind of social media platform against this or that, you might get blocked. But it is already considered hate speech in other countries around the world, and it's coming to this country where it'll be more than getting put in Facebook jail. When you speak out against sin, you'll go to jail. That's just, that's just coming. That's why I think, this is my opinion, 
That's why I think you see so many so-called Christian teachers or leaders caving in to the issues of today that are against the scripture. Somehow they have discovered what they claim to be biblical support that no biblical scholar has found in the last 2,000 years, but they find out, well, God really wasn't against homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. What he was punishing was inhospitality. That's a legitimate that's a legitimate explanation, by the way, for Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. I laugh at that. You laugh at that. But there are pre people out there preaching and people out there accepting that Sodom was destroyed because of inhospitality, not because of the sin of sodomy. This is what's going on today. And they're doing so from an educated background. They've got their degrees and diplomas. They've got their best-selling books and their huge churches. Romans 1.22 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. When you compare them to Scripture, that's exactly what's going on. Now listen, in all of that, don't be dismayed. These are the perilous times that Paul said in 2 Timothy are coming. They're here. They're here. We will not flee. How will we respond? Do we run and hide? Do we change our biblical conviction to accommodate a sinful society? Is that what we do? No, we don't flee. There's a motto that the U.S. Coast Guard has. Uh, I don't know that it's their official motto, but there's a motto that they, they use, a creed that they use. And it simply says this. Some of you may know it. You have to go out. You know what the second half of that is? You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That means that the implication is you got to go out there and rescue those people on that sinking ship, but it may cost you your life. You have to go out. That's your duty, but you don't have to come back. And Christian, you may not survive the persecution that's coming, but you got to stand for what's right. And I've got to stand for what's right. So David says this, first of all, he says, we will not flee. In verse number two, he says, we will not fear. In verse two, this is the argument of his friends counseling him to leave town. For lo, the wicked men bend, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string that they might privately shoot at the upright in heart. They're going to ambush you, David. You're upright in heart, David. They're going to ambush you. He's saying we're not going to flee. They're not being metaphorical here, by the way. Saul was bending his bow and shooting his arrows. He's doing his best. He started with the javelin trying to kill David, and then he sent an army out after him. So this isn't metaphorical speech in verse number two. But David stands up and he says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be afraid here. Do you remember a number of years ago when the Supreme Court uh, passed the law that they did, or they upheld the law that was made to legalize homosexual marriage? There was a group of evangelical pastors that got together and they made an open letter and they signed, they signed this all over the country. The statement is entitled, Here We Stand, an Evangelical Declaration on Marriage. This is the opening paragraph. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's quite, it's quite a document. But this is how they opened it, and I love the end of the first paragraph. As evangelical Christians, we dissent from the court's ruling that redefines marriage. The state did not create the family and should not try to recreate the family in its own image. We will not capitulate on marriage because biblical authority requires that we cannot. Amen. That's a good, strong statement. Amen. Biblical authority requires that we cannot. 
We will not flee when the foundations are destroyed. We will not fear. So when the government proposes or even passes a decree that clearly and profoundly violates what God's word says, you and I have no choice but to dissent. We just can't go along with that. This is why for years those who believe that God is the author of life vehemently oppose the abortion laws that allowed babies to be murdered while alive, be, be murdered in the womb. Here's what you and I have to come, here, here's what we have to come down to realizing, and then we have to let this translate into what we do and what we say. Church, truth is not a popularity contest. That's, the, that's how it works. Truth is not a popularity contest. It doesn't matter who's running for governor or for, or, or for president or for congressman or for senator. It doesn't matter. Truth is truth is truth. We don't argue on the grounds of political rightness. We argue and defend on the ground of biblical authority. God's the author of life, so he is to be the finisher of life, not some doctor in a surgical room. Stand on the unshakable foundation of God's word, especially when it comes to moral law. David, you need to get out of town. You need to flee to Egypt. We will not flee. We will not fear. We will, not, we will not fret. We will not fret. That word foundations is interesting. You know, for a long time before I, before I studied that, what that word is implying, I just figured it was the foundation of a house. Do you know that is the specific Hebrew word that refers to political or moral supports of a society? That's not the Hebrew word given to the foundation of your house. That's, it refers to the political or moral supports of a society. How can we do when those things crumble? Do we quit? Do we frown? Do we retreat? Do we become bitter? Do we resort to violence? These are not rhetorical questions for Christians living in the Middle East. Christians like you and me living in the Middle East in the wrong country to make the profession of faith you and I would make publicly, that cost them their life. And that cost their family their lives. In our country, the acceptance of sin, uh, the continual growth of evil, that's just Romans chapter 1 coming to pass. We're not going to turn there. We don't have time. It deserves an exposition all itself. Romans chapter 1, begin at verse number 18 and read about the next 10 or 15 verses and you'll see that's where we are living today. So do we get discouraged? What, what can we do? What can the righteous do when the foundation are destroyed? Don't fret. You serve a big God. If you had a little God, your problems would be big. But you don't. You serve a big God and all is going to be well because he's in control. There's a commitment that you and I need to make. When we watch, and, and I'm not arguing this morning that the foundations are not being destroyed. They are being destroyed. The American culture, the American economy, at some point, it almost has to collapse. It almost has to. When that happens, as it's happening, you, we are watching it happen today. What do we do? We make this commitment that we will not flee, we will not fear, and we will not fret. 
We look to God. That's what we do. We need a fresh view of God. Well, that's the second part of David's thing, uh, of David's, David's point here, David's chapter in, ver- in chapter number 11. The second part, first he says there's a commitment to be made, but second he says there's a confidence to be expressed. And as you and I are out in the world and around people who do not believe in the same God you and I believe in, they need to see this confidence expressed in us. May I tell you what David doesn't say in this chapter? I made a list of things because what is said is, is oftentimes just as important as what's not said. What doesn't David say here? He doesn't call for his army to mount an offensive against Saul. He didn't do that. He doesn't say to run to the hills. He doesn't say to raise money for a big political campaign. And he doesn't organize a social media blitz against Saul and his, his government. He doesn't say any of those things. For David, it wasn't about the what. It was about the who. And when he asked that question, verse number three, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The very next thing he says in verse number four is, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He puts our perspective right where it needs to be. Turn your attention off of the what, back onto the who. Let's be honest, tactics matter. There is a time for war. Ecclesiastes 3.8 tells us that, that there is a time of war. When a nation needs to be protected, there's a time to do that. It does matter who occupies the White House. It does matter who occupies the governmental mansions. It does matter, uh, matter on these things. But our hope is not in those things. But it does matter. Doesn't Proverbs chapter 29 verse 2, it says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. It does matter. It does matter who who wins the election. Vote wisely. You need a lot of discernment. But when the foundations are destroyed, my confidence is not in Washington. My confidence is to be in God. And that's what David says for the next four verses, starting at verse 4 and going down through verse 7. He says, you need to have a confidence in God that is expressed. And he tells his men, when they come to him and say, you need to flee like a bird to the mountains, he turns right around and says, no, what we need to do is put our focus on God. He's the one in control. Confidence how? In the first part of verse number four, he says there needs to be a confidence in God's presence. I love the way he answers that question. The answer to the question, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer that David gives is not instruction. Did you notice that? Do you remember in grammar class when you were in school, there are different types of speech that you can make. There's interrogative where you can you ask questions. There is, uh, there is the instructional where you tell someone how to do things. You can give different types of speeches. Remember that? David doesn't, when, when he asks the question, what shall the righteous do? He doesn't give an instructional response. He gives a declarative response. He simply, he simply says this, God's still on his throne. When the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? God's still on his throne. He declares he doesn't instruct. That's a, that's an, a, that's a unique response. But it tells you where his focus was. Confidence in God's presence. 
He confesses God's omnipresence and God's sovereign rule over the whole universe. It may not appear that way when you hear the news today. Corruption and war and violence and immorality, all those things, it'd be, it'd be easy to conclude either there is no God or there's a God but he doesn't care. But that's not what, they, what David says here. And this is the foundational difference between the believer and the unbeliever. We believe that there is an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God occupying the throne of the universe, and that God is sovereign. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours. His schedule is different than ours. And one day, the entire human race will give an account to that God. That's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. He is a God. He is a God who is concerned. And he is the God who is sovereign. I I wrote down, God is never surprised. He's never asleep. He's never startled by evil or shocked by natural disasters. He's not shaken by any Supreme Court decision. When when you read the phrase throne in relation to God in the Bible, plug the word in there, immovable. If, if, If ever there is a reference to God's throne or the throne on which God sits or Jesus the Lamb sitting on the throne, plug the word in there, immovable. There is nothing that shakes or trembles the throne of God. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? David takes my attention and your attention, and he puts it right on the throne of God. He says, it's going to be fine. God's in control. There was a Greek scholar by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, and he said, he said the hardest verse in the Bible to believe is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Dr. Johnson said, if you can believe that verse, you will have no trouble believing the rest of the Bible. It's vitally important that the Bible begins with a declaration and not an argument. The Bible simply says in Genesis 1-1, there's a God. Well, I don't believe that. Well, that doesn't matter. There is a God. Well, I'm not sure. How can I know it? Look, there's a God. Everything you see and can't see, he made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11.6 says this, For he that believeth, or he that cometh to God, must believe that he is. He, he just, he is. A confidence in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, you have that, that wonderful verse. The, the, the golden age of Israel and Judah is passing quickly. And there's a godly king in Judah, and his name, and he's reigned for a long time. His name is Uzziah, and he dies. The people had been on idolatry. He pulled them out of idolatry, and, and he, put them on the worship, he put them back on the worship of Jehovah, and he dies. And Isaiah makes this statement in, in chapter 6 and verse 1 of his prophecy. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died. It was a, it was a groundbreaking moment for for the nation of Judah. What was going to happen? Would they continue to follow God? Would they they go back to idolatry? Is the nation going to be taken over? What's going to happen? 
And Isaiah comes up, and do you remember what he says? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, and his train filled the temple. It's not like God was pacing the halls of heaven and, and wondering, oh, King Uzziah's died. What am I going to do with Judah now? What, what's going to happen? God's not pacing at all. God never paces. You can pace your hallway at night when your little baby gets sick and you're pacing that hallway wondering if God's going to spare his or her life. Or something is collapsing, your job or your home, and you're pacing. I want you to know, church, God never paces in anxiety or nervousness. He doesn't. The presence of God. We ought to be confident in God's presence. Second, we ought to be confident in God's judgment. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? First of all, you express confidence in the presence of God. And then second, in the judgment of God. He says in verse number four, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Just, just stop right there. Are you, you, getting what that, you getting what that's saying? Have you ever been too far Have you ever been too far away from your parents when you were a kid for them to jerk a knot in you because you were misbehaving so they just gave you a look? And you knew right then, boy, my life's about to get cut short. <laughs> That's what's being expressed at the end of verse number four. God is, God is looking at them with his eye and he says, his eyelids. Your dad, your dad narrows his eyelids at you across the auditorium. I remember when I was a kid in church. I'll, just, I'll confess to you, right? Here comes a confession. I was sitting over here this in, in our church in Maryville, Victory Baptist Church in Maryville. Our teenagers sat right over here. Three rows of pews. Uh, our teens sat right over there. I was sitting with two of my good friends, Kenneth and Dennis Satterfield. We're all the same age. They're twins. They played football for Maryville High School. I went to William Blunt High School. But at church, we were best friends. Kenneth and Dennis both had very sensitive knees. I don't know, 14, 15, 16 years old, however old I was. We're sitting there in church. Pastor Wiggins is preaching. I just reach over and I grab the top of Kenneth's knee and I just squeezed the fire out of it. He kicked. He, he responded. He kicked and he busted his shin on the pew in front of him. Now, it hurt him. To his credit, he didn't squeal like a girl. I would have. But that thing thudded in that auditorium. And my dad looked right over at me. And I was like, and I just knew, well, you are busted when you get home. That didn't say a word. His eyes told me, you are toast, son. <laughs> this is what God is saying. He's going to judge with his eyes. He sees everything. And then it says his eyelids try the children of men. Read, read it, it gets sobering real quick here. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the, wickest, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Confidence that in this world where it seems like evil and wicked and violence is winning, confidence in God's judgment. He's going to judge. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? 
you can have confidence in his judgment. I don't know who first said it, but I've heard several preachers say it. That the wheels of God may grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. Everyone pays for their sin. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. These verses we just read, verses 4, 5, and 6, there's an eternal and solemn difference there between the believer and the unbeliever. God gives his love and his compassion and his care to the righteous, but to the unrighteous, boy, it just, it's a completely different ending, isn't it? Sometimes that difference is easily seen. The, 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 sometimes in this life, the, the difference is seen between the righteous and the unrighteous. And sometimes it's not. We could go take a peaceful walk through Jefferson Memorial Gardens over here, and we can walk through that cemetery and the thousands of graves that are in there, and we could read the names and the birthdays and the, birth, and the, death, the death years of all these people's lives, and we can't determine in there who's a saint and who's a sinner. We can't tell. But there's coming a day when that discernment will absolutely be made. I can't tell. I can't tell when people are living if they're saved or not sometimes. God knows. And he makes this, he makes this difference. He sees everything there is to see. He reads every heart. He knows my thoughts. There is a terrible day of judgment coming for those who reject God and his son and his word. It's a terrible day and it's described here in the words of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and, and brimstone. Don't water this down. It's a wicked, terrible judgment that's coming. It's a righteous judgment. And it's coming. You can have confidence in, in, when the foundations are being destroyed and things are, are, are crumbling around. You can have confidence in the presence of God. You can have confidence in the judgment of God. Last, in verse number 7, you can have confidence in the deliverance of God. He's going to make it right. He's coming for you. His child. David says in verse number 7, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth uphold the upright. He stands on this peak of faith and he says, God stands for those who stand for him. It doesn't matter how hot the battle gets. God's going to come through here. He's going to give victory. There is coming a day. There is coming a day, church, when it's going to be made right. Just stand for what's right. God's going to count that. He's keeping count. There was a man by the name of Richard John Newhouse. He started a number of years ago. He was an evangelical Lutheran. And he started a magazine called First Things. And he was known as a defender of the Christian moral and spiritual values based on biblical truths. He spoke all over the country, and he was invited to come to this Pennsylvania city, and he, he went there to go speak. And the guy who picked him up at the airport uh, and was driving him to the engagement, he was going right from the airplane to the hall to speak in. And the guy who picked him up was just bemoaning the, the, absolute, uh, the absolute despair of, of society. This is going wrong, and this is going wrong, and people are doing this, and people are doing that, and, and society is not what it used to be. Righteousness is mocked, and wickedness is exalted. And the guy was going on and on. And Newhouse said this to him. These may be bad times, but they are the times we have been given. Hope is still a Christian virtue. Despair for the Christian is still a sin. 
May I say the first part of that again? These may be bad times, but they are the only times we are given. I, maybe you prefer you didn't live in the end of in the begin the, the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. Maybe you preferred to live at a different time period, but this is the time you and I have been given. This is the time when, uh, when our leaders can be spiritually and morally corrupt or blind. But we are not to despair. Finish this verse. If God be for us, who can be against us? Confidence in the deliverance of God. We don't have to despair. Uh, let, me, let me say this. Can, and I'm guilty of saying this. Maybe you are too. We say things like this. I can't even imagine what America's going to be like 100 years from now if the Lord tarries. Can I give you some good news? Don't worry about it because you're not going to be here in 100 years. I wouldn't worry about it. In 100 years, if you know Christ, the furthest thing from your mind 100 years from now is going to be the condition of the United States of America. Don't despair. Don't worry about what America will be like in 100 years. Worry about what you are doing in 2024 to further the cause of Christ because this is the only time you and I have been given. You have been put on this planet at this time, saved by God's grace, to share the light of Jesus Christ with a world who is getting to hell as quickly as they can. And somebody needs to jump in front of them and say, this is the difference Christ has made, can make in you because it's the difference he's made in me. He's taken me off the road to destruction and he's put me on the road to righteousness and eternal life. You can do those things. Those who know and love the Lord are one day going to see his face. Until then, show his face to others. Show people Jesus Christ. The foundations, uh, let me just help you so you don't worry. The foundations are going to continue to crumble worldwide. I'm just telling you, it's not going to get better. Scripture says, and it's been proven true for the last 2,000 years, it is going to get worse. It will do that until it climaxes in the return of Jesus Christ. But the wicked will not have the last word. Jesus is coming. He's going to do all that he said he's going to do. So between now and then, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's my closing thought with you. What we need when the foundations are destroyed is a fresh view of God and a long view of history. You need a long view of history because I want you to look back and see all that God has done that he said he was going to do and then he did it. So whatever he says he's going to do in the future, you can count on it. He's going to do it. The foundations destroyed, probably. But make the commitment. We're not going to fear. We're not going to flee. We're not going to fret. And then express this confidence and do it publicly. Confidence in God's presence. He's still on his throne. Confidence in God's judgment. He's going to do what's right. Confidence in God's deliverance. He's coming back. Don't be discouraged, church, going into 24. Be encouraged. I don't know who's going to win the election. Apparently, we don't know who's running yet. <laughs> and I am going to vote. I don't think it's right for a Christian not to vote. I think you live in a free country. You have the privilege of selecting your, your leaders. 
Take that. Take that. But do it biblically. Just because your granddad was a Republican or your granddad was a Democrat doesn't mean that's how you vote. You pick up the word of God. You find out what these men and these women are are basing their, uh, basing their platforms on, and you square it with this. And if it doesn't square, just keep moving on down the line. Be, be biblical in your thinking on every set. If you're going to look at this world, if you're going to look to Nashville or to Washington, and, and you're going to be discouraged, you know, what, what's election day? The first, or the first Tuesday after the first Monday. If the first Wednesday, after the first Tuesday, after the first Monday, if you, you wake up on that Wednesday and you are sad and you're disheartened by what happened on Tuesday the day before, get your Bible open, come back to Psalm chapter 11, and remember that God is still on his throne, and you and I ought to live like that. What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? You can look to the God in heaven. You can see him sitting on an immovable throne. And then you go out into that world and you live like Jesus Christ is still king. And things are going to be just fine for the child of God. They're not for the lost person. So do what you can to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people who are right now on their way to hell. Commit and confidence, those two words. Commit and confidence. Church, going into this, going into this next year, determine that you're going to be ready for Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he's going to find you doing what he left you here to do. All right? Let's stand together with your heads bowed, would you? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the assurance we have in it. If all we're going to do is look around this planet, Lord, that you created but that sin has destroyed, we're going to be